The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning. Our scripture lesson today is from the book of Judges, chapter 2, 14 through chapter 3, verse 6. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunders who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left them when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath, and they for the rest of uh, for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezrites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and their daughters to, they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm, uh, I'm going to start a GoFundMe so that we can get Jeff Steiglater to record an entire audio Bible, <laughs> the official Shades Valley version. So... Anyway, thank you, Jeff. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. 
and that you've given it to us so that we may hear from you even in the midst of the darkest of times, dark like the book of Judges. And I pray that this morning you will continue to do what you always do in the midst of the dark, and that's shine a light. The light that the darkness cannot overcome, the light of your son, Jesus Christ. Show us the bright light of his glory in the gospel, and let that be the foundation of our faith, our hope, and propel us to be a people of love. We pray these things in his name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of Judges. And this morning, we are finally going to finish up the introductory material to the book. I know it has taken us a hot second to get through Judges 2, count them, 2 introductions. But do not let that fact cause you to like tune out today. The things that we're going to see this morning, these are not just a few little like straggling like extra details. No, the things we're going to see this morning are essential truths at the heart of this book. Truths that remind us who is at the center of this story. Because here's the deal. Like stories change depending upon what character you put at the center. This is true of every situation I have ever encountered in my home where two of my children make one another cry. Somebody has sinned, somebody is suffering. But who is the villain and who is the victim changes depending upon who's telling the story because they all tell it from their perspective with themselves at the center. This is what we all naturally do and we do it when we come to the Bible too. We we read the Bible putting ourselves at the center of the story. And as a result, we often come away confused by what we read, like even offended. See some of God's actions? We see things like we're going to see today, his anger, his righteous wrath, and he comes across to us as the villain of the story who abandons his people amidst their sin and their suffering. What What we need, Shades, is we need to be reoriented. We need a new God-centered perspective because this is his story. And it only, it will only make sense when it is centered on him. When we do that, we will actually see God not as the villain, but as the victor who doesn't abandon us amidst our sin and suffering. No, he loves us and draws near to us amidst our sin and suffering and actually achieves the very victory that we need, a victory of grace. Like, tell me, Shades, tell me, whether you find yourself in the midst of suffering or whether you find yourself like caught up in a seemingly undefeatable cycle of sin, no matter which of those you're in, do you feel abandoned by God? Amidst your suffering, amidst your sin, do you feel like he's just turned his back on you, walked away? Do you feel abandoned by him? Like he's the villain of your story. Shades, I want to invite you to take a closer look at Judges with me this morning and see him at the center of your story. Because when you do, I promise you'll behold, he is no villain. He is the victor who achieves the victory you need, the victory of grace. Let's Let's take a closer look so that that, his victorious grace, that will be the very foundation of our faith. Take a closer look with me. Judges 2, we're starting in verse 14. Scripture says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. 
And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, that's to go to war, to battle, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So these are the kinds of passages. These are the kinds of passages that often leave us asking, what in the world did I just read? Like, did that really say God's anger was kindled against his people? So much so that he let them be conquered by their enemies. Did it it really say that God's hand was against his people for harm? Is that how God is towards his people? Is that how God is towards me? It often feels that way. This is the kind of thing that we read in scripture that makes us feel like God's the villain of the story. But shades, we're not seeing the whole story. Not seeing the the whole story when we look at it that way. We, right here, in Judges 2 and verse 14, we are at the midpoint of Judges' second introduction. If you've been with us this whole time, you know that the first introduction gave us a big picture of this book, a big picture of what went wrong with Israel as it tried to finish the conquest of the land of Canaan but failed. Gave us a big picture of what went wrong, and then it gave us a big picture of how God responded to the people's failure. The second introduction to this book, which we began looking at last week, it zooms in to give us a closer look at both of those things. Closer look at what went wrong. Closer look at how God responds. Last week, we zoomed in on what went wrong. We looked at two things. We took a closer look at Israel's failed faith, why they failed to trust in God. And we took a closer look at Israel's false faith, where they placed their faith instead, in false gods. That is the context. That's the whole story in which we need to take a closer look at the next thing, at God's response. That's what we're going to zoom in on this week. And again, we need to see two things. We need a closer look at God's righteous response. And we need a closer look at God's gracious response. Right here, in chapter 2 and verse 14, we're getting a closer look at that first thing. Number one, we need a closer look at God's righteous response. We need a closer look at God's righteous response. It's a response. Like, Like right here in verse 14, God's anger doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not like Israel's just twiddling their thumbs, innocently walking along, and then God gets ticked for no apparent reason. We're told that his anger is kindled. Verse 12 is even a little bit more explicit. It says that his anger was provoked. Like he's slow to anger. It takes a lot. In other words, what we're seeing in verse 14 in God's anger is a response. It's a response to To what? Well, to the things we talked about last week, to Israel's failed faith and to Israel's false faith. Look down at verse 11. It sums it up quite nicely for us. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. God's anger is a response. A response to what? To Israel's evil. Now, we've got to dive a little bit deeper, take a little bit of a closer look at this. If I was to ask you to define evil, what would you say? 
Like what kind of things start coming to mind? I imagine, I imagine, uh, I had a kidney stone this past week. That is my current running definition of evil. It's the first one I've ever had. It's from the devil. Anyway, sorry. I imagine most of us would define it as something that is harmful to yourself, like I just did, or something that harms someone else. Maybe we'd say evil is anything that causes suffering. Each one of us would probably define it a little bit differently because each one of us would find it according to what looks right and wrong to our eyes. Like from my perspective, we would define it with us at the center of the story. Where we are king, we get to define everything, including evil. That's precisely what the people in the book of Judges do. As the book of Judges ends, we're going to get this mantra again and again and again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. From my eyes, from my perspective, me at the center of the story, I'm going to decide what's good, what's evil, do what's right in my own eyes. Because there is no king, I am my own king. That's how the book of Judges ends. But the book of Judges begins with the reality that there is a king and we are not him. God is king and he is at the center of the story. And evil is defined by what's right and wrong in his eyes. Is that not precisely what we see in verse 11? Look at it again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In his eyes. And then we get it defined what exactly that is. And they served the Baals. False gods. These are parallel lines. They did what was evil. They served the Baals. One defines the other. In other words, evil is being defined right here for us. The essence of evil is idolatry. You dig down underneath all of it. You get to the bottom of it. The essence of evil is idolatry. Everything else that we would throw at that word evil, that we would use evil to describe, everything else are the effects felt downstream from the fountainhead of evil that is idolatry. Like everything that we would ever label as evil, murder, lies, strife, war, oppression, any wrong action, any wrong emotion, you don't get any of that unless people first turn their back on God and bow down to someone or something else. Idolatry is the fountainhead from which every other evil flows. J.I. Packer would say it this way. He would say that the essence of sin is when man substitutes himself for God. The essence of sin, the essence of evil, he's saying the same thing is when God is taken out of his place as God. This is precisely what we see Adam and Eve do with original sin, right? They de-God God. They dethrone the king and put themselves in his place. The essence of evil is idolatry. How do we want God to respond? Like as we think about evil, I think all of us are very quick to say we want all of the effects of evil eliminated. 
all that stuff that flows downstream, the war, the murder, the lying, all of that, we would like all of that eliminated because we mistakenly think that they are the essence of evil. Because they're what affects us, right? When we put ourselves at the center of the story, this is all the evil that affects me. We all want the effects of evil to be eliminated, but that downstream flood will only dry up if it is cut off at its source, at the heart of darkness of idolatry. Idolatry is the deepest, darkest essence of evil. Think about it with me and why that is. Idolatry rejects God as the one true king. Have you ever, have you ever had anybody say anything about you that's not true? No one? No one ever had anyone spread any lie or rumor about them? I mean, like, as a pastor, I cannot relate to this at all. I've never had anyone say anything where I felt misunderstood or anything of that nature. When somebody spreads lies about you, it's such a deep betrayal, right? Like, the pain of that is so hard to work through. It cuts so deep. This is precisely what idolatry does with respect to God. It looks at the one true God and all of his greatness and all of his goodness and all of his beauty. And idolatry says, none of that's true. You're not truly great. I believe myself or whatever I'm going to put in your place, whatever idol I'm going to embrace, you're not great. This is. And therefore, you can't be truly good because you've lied to me saying, God, you've said you're the greatest. I know you're not. So you're not truly good either. So I'm going to seek my satisfaction somewhere else because ultimately you're not true beauty either. I'll satisfy my heart with what I believe to be true beauty. Idolatry is the worst lie we can tell because God is the truest truth we can express. It's the worst lie we can tell. It's the worst rebellion that we can make. It's the worst betrayal we can commit. Idolatry is the worst adultery. That's how God frames it. Just look in verse 17 where he says that his people hoard after other gods, prostituted themselves, committed adultery. This is because God views his relationship with his people as that of a husband and a bride pledged in faithfulness. And so any to turn to any other God is to commit marital unfaithfulness, adultery. Idolatry is the worst, idolatry is the worst adultery. Can you, can you see why God gets angry? Because he tells us over and over again, he is a passionate God. Hey, You've probably heard it more said that he is a jealous God. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Kina. Uh, the Hebrew word would be much better translated as passion, ardor. This is not God being petty. This is God being loving. He loves his people, and they abandon him to go after other Bales. I don't know if you remember this, but last week we talked about the fact that that word Baal, it can be translated as husband. Like they abandoned their rightful husband to go after other husbands. Idolatry is the worst 
adultery. It's the very heart of evil. Then shades, once you kind of get your mind around that, and you can only get it around that if you put God at the center of the story and not yourself. But once you kind of get your mind around that, then add to that every effect of evil that flows downstream from idolatry. All of that. And you will begin to feel the weight of the flood that is evil. Now, how do we want God to respond? If he is great, if he is good, if he is beautiful as he has claimed to be, how can he respond any other way than righteously? And that's precisely what we are seeing right here in the text. We are getting a closer look at the righteous response of God's wrath which is not, I hope you know this by now, it's not opposed to his love. It's actually an expression of it. You ever heard that before? God, God's wrath is actually an expression, a response of his love. God is not wrathful in and of himself. Were there no sin, God has no wrath. But even in the absence of sin, God has love. He is love. Eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a loving community of a trinity that exists in eternal, perfect love. God is love at the very essence of his being. Wrath only comes up in response to sin, and it is a loving response to sin. God loves his creation. He is committed to removing everything and everyone that brings death to it through idolatry. Because he loves. He's... He loves so much, he has promised to do that. We love that promise. We pray that promise. Every stinking day, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Evil, remove it. He has promised to do that, and he is faithful to keep that promise. Is that not what we see in verse 15? Look at it, chapter 2 and verse 15. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Why? As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. In other words, all we're seeing is God be faithful to do what he promised he would do. Faithfully remove evil. You go into this land, Israel, and you embrace the evil of the Canaanites, become just like Canaanites, I, I'll judge your evil just like I judge theirs. I will be faithful to do what I promised to do, remove evil. His righteous wrath is an expression of his faithful love. Every parent knows this to be true. Don't you? I mean, like, isn't this what you do, a good parent, isn't this what you do with evil that tries to enter into your child's life? Your love for your child expresses itself through wrath that aims to remove all evil. And often, in that process, you have to convince your kid that you're not the one being the villain. No, I'm not going to allow you to have a phone at nine years of age like all of your peers. I will not allow you to put the internet in your pocket with access to every porn store in the world. Not going to do it. And I'm not the villain. I love you. Therefore, I have wrath against Apple and Android. No, I'm not going to let you hang out with those people. No, I'm not the villain. I love you. 
and I will remove them from your life. Shades, when we see God's wrath, when you read scripture and you see God's wrath on display, he is not the villain. If we will take a closer look contextually and put him at the center of the story where he belongs, we will actually see he's not the villain, he's the victor. He's the victor. Like, like my wrath is aimed at achieving victory for my kids. Take a closer look and see that God's righteous response right here, his, his loving wrath, it is aimed at victory. It's aimed at victory in one of two ways. Through removal and redemption. We've already talked about removal. How God promised to remove all things that are evil. But I contend that God's ultimate, his number one priority, even over removal, is redemption. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the prophet tells us. Removal is not God's number one desire. Redemption is, and I think we see that even here in Judges. Look down at verse 20 to 22. Judges chapter 2. Verse 20 to 22. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order. So here's his point, his purpose in doing this. In order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. Notice, Shades, God's people rebel. He does not immediately remove them, which he could totally do, be completely just and right, but he doesn't. Instead, in his great patience, he leaves their enemies among them. And why? He tells us why. To provide an opportunity for repentance. To provide an opportunity for redemption. Is that not what he says? In order to see, will you come back? Will you repent and walk faithfully with me as your forefathers did? He leaves their enemies as an extended invitation to return to faithfulness. This gets even more explicit when we keep reading into Judges chapter 3. Look at Judges 3 verses 1 and 2. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. In other words, this generation right here that's getting all their enemies left among them. This is not the generation that came into Canaan fighting alongside of Joshua, breaking the back of Canaanite resistance. They, they didn't fight in those wars. They hadn't learned war. And so God leaves the nations so that they might learn war. What, what, what does that mean? Like they need to learn how to fight? No. The contrast is between a generation that learned through war and one who has not. What did the former generation learn? When you read Joshua, what did they learn through war? They learned to depend on the Lord. They learned he really was their savior. They needed him. 
He alone displayed his victory and his power through the battle of Jericho. And in the next battle at Ai, when the people try to go up and do it on their own, they lose. They need him. They depend upon him. They learn he really is the one true God. And he is true. everything that he's ever said about himself is true. He is great, good, and beautiful. He is everything he claims to be. He's everything they need. And so here, with the subsequent generation, God graciously leaves the enemies in the land so that this new generation might learn the same thing. How else are they going to learn that they need the Lord unless they have need of him? How else are they going to learn to depend upon the Lord unless there is opportunity to depend upon him? Just read verse 4, chapter 3 and verse 4. They, that's the nations that God left in the land, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. God leaves these nations to give Israel an opportunity to repent and return. Like in the, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their, their sin, that is where they will see their need for a savior. Do you see, Shades? God's righteous wrath is lovingly aimed ultimately at their redemption. It's aimed at victory. Unfortunately, the book of Judges reveals to us that Israel still won't listen. You can read about it. You look down at verses 5 and 6, which we covered last week. Read about their continued rebellion. As a matter of fact, as we continue on throughout the rest of this book, that's what we're going to read about again and again and again. We're going to, we're going to see over and over a cycle of sin and rebellion. How will God respond to that? Like, see how he responds initially, but how will he respond continually? And the people fail over and over and over again. Will he give up on redemption then? How will God respond? Shades, he will respond in a way that the world could never anticipate with lavish, loving grace. This is the second thing we need to see. Zoom in, take a closer look with me. Number two, we need a closer look at God's great grace. We need a closer look at God's great grace. Go back to chapter 2 where we left off. Judges chapter 2 and verse 16. This is right after we hear that the people are being oppressed. They're in terrible distress. We read, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So the people sin. They rebel, embracing the very essence of evil, idolatry. God responds in righteous wrath, but the story doesn't end there. He doesn't just respond to their sin with justice. He also responds with judges. We're told God raises up judges. Pause right there. When we talk about judges, don't think black robe, gavel, courtroom. The, uh, the Hebrew word for judge basically means govern or, or rule. So in places like Psalm 67, where it talks about the earth rejoicing because God comes to judge the world. We read that and we're like, what? Because we have a negative connotation of the word judge, but really it just means the world rejoices because God comes to rule, to reign. 
And he will do so perfectly. So this word judge means govern, rule, reign. And there's, there's two aspects to this word. There's an internal aspect and an external. We're familiar with this when it comes to governing or government. And you've got internal affairs like within the country. We've got external, international type affairs. So internally, like within the nation of Israel itself, judging and governing does look a little bit more like the black robe gavel kind of situation. Not quite, but a little bit more. It looks like ruling over internal affairs happening within the nation, determining what's right and wrong, guiding the nation forward. We will see a little bit of that, not much, but a little bit of that from the judges that God raises up in this book. The primary aspect of judging that's going to get emphasized for us, though, is the external aspect. That's what's going to take center stage in this book. Externally, how Israel relates to these other nations outside it that are oppressing it. Judging in relation to those nations looks a lot more like defending or delivering, rescuing. The the judges, in other words, the judges that God raises up are more like military leaders. They're more like rescuers. They're more like saviors. Isn't that what verse 16 says God raised them up to do? To save? Next week, we're going to get introduced to our first judge, and this is precisely how he will be described. Go on and look down at it with me right now. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Moshiach, Savior. Raised up. God raises up saviors to save his people from the just wrath, his wrath, his own wrath. God's on both sides of the equation here. He raises up saviors to save his people from the just wrath that they deserve. Why? They don't deserve it. Why why would he do such a thing? It's not because the people cry out in repentance. Like, like we assume that's what's going on. When we hear in the text that people cried out to the Lord, we assume that they are crying out in repentance. But the text doesn't say that. I don't think they're crying out in repentance. I think we're going to see again and again they're crying out in regret. It's, it's funny to me how when we read the text of Scripture and we encounter people, we encounter ourselves, we assume the best. They're crying out to the Lord. This is real repentance here. And when we read about God, we assume the worst. His judgment can't possibly be just right here. I wonder who it is that wants us to see Scripture through that lens. Perhaps the one whose first words to us were, did God really say? Is his word really good? Or should you slide yourself to the center of the story? Assume the best of you and the worst of of God. This is what we do, but I don't believe for a single solitary second that these people's repentance right here is real. I don't even believe it's repentance. I think judges are going to help us see they don't cry out in repentance. They cry out in regret. And still, even still, God raises up saviors to save them from the wrath they justly deserve. Why? Look at verse 18. 
Judges 2 and verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity. I think a better translation is compassion. He was moved to compassion by their groaning, not their repenting, just their suffering. Because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Pity. Compassion. This, this, this is why, this is why God saves his people from the just wrath that they deserve because he is a God of compassion. Psalm 106, which recounts the history of Israel, and when it looks at this specific phase, the phase of the judges, what does it say about why God continually raises up judges and saves his people? Because he's a God of steadfast love. He does this. Why does he do that? He does this because this is the kind of God that he is. God of steadfast love, a God of compassion, a God who, who has compassion so welling up in him that it overflows to those who don't deserve it. He gives it anyway. Shades, that's what we call grace. And judges will show us its greatness. Look with me, verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges. God in his great grace, and they still don't listen. And listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods. They bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died, the people turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. I've as we've been going through the introduction to this book, I've told you many times that the body of the book of Judges is going to come at us in cycles, six cycles to be precise. And right here, we're getting a summary of what those cycles look like. Like you can break this down into steps. People break it down in all sorts of, some people have like four things, some people have seven, I've got six for you. You get me, so you get six. Here's the six steps in this cycle we're going to see over and over again. The people rebel, God responds in wrath, People express regret. God rescues them through a judge. There's rest for a little while. And then the cycle of sin repeats. That's my summary of the cycle, these six things. Rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue, rest, repeat. I know wrath doesn't start with an R, but come on, it sounds the same. I get a bye. <laughs> I feel like I experienced this cycle a little bit on Tuesday night slash Wednesday morning when my body rebelled. I told you, I felt a pain in my side. I thought it was my appendix, so I'm Googling in my bed, where's the appendix located? It's much, much lower, so this is higher. I knew this is something else. And uh, it felt, honestly, kind of like the wrath of God. And as I made that very peaceful drive to the emergency room around one in the morning, I found myself regretting all of my life decisions up to that point. Like what idolatrous food and drink is it that I have consumed to cause such pain? God in his mercy and grace, when I arrived at the ER, he raised up a deliverer by the name of Toradol. It is a great pain med. And that injection gave me 
rest. Until about an hour and a half later. And the cycle repeated. And God raised up another deliverer by the name of hydrocodone. And then the cycle repeated and repeated and repeated until it was finally broken. This, this is the cycle. Really, I just wanted to tell you all about my kidney stone. But this is the cycle. <laughs> this is the cycle that we see happening with Israel. Rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue, rest, repeat. And some people might look at it and call it a cycle of sin, and that's true. We might actually call it a spiral because it's descending in its pattern. It doesn't just repeat, it descends. It gets worse with every repetition. Look, Look at verse 19 again. It says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Like each generation outdoes the last in evil. But still God saves which makes us see this is not merely a cycle of sin. It is a cycle of grace. God's great grace. Because if, if every, see this, Shades, if every cycle of Israel's sin descends into deeper depths, then that means that every cycle of God's grace ascends to higher heights. Shades, judges makes us take a closer look at God's great Grace, so that it will become the foundation of our faith. That's what happens when we take a closer look. Shades, do you see? Do do you see more closely and clearly God's righteous response to our sin? And that that doesn't make him the villain, it makes him the victor. For, For the righteous response is one of love. It's aimed at shaking us and waking us up from the slumber that sin has put us in so that we'll repent and we will return to him. Shades, could it be, could it be that the very things in your life that make you feel like God is the villain of your story, could it be that those are the very things through which he is graciously, lovingly aiming to achieve victory? Like, if you're entangled in a cycle of sin, could it be? Could it be that his loving discipline isn't him being the villain, but it's him graciously, lovingly pointing you toward victory over sin through repentance? Or if you find yourself in the midst of suffering, that suffering that feels like war, that's what the people get right here, right? Feels like a pressure. Could, could it be that through that thing that feels like war, God is teaching you what it really means to depend on him? Could suffering be the path through which you're actually coming to know him as you share in the fellowship of his sufferings? That's how the apostle Paul would put it. Comes to know Christ more as he shares in the fellowship of his sufferings because he has to depend on Christ more. Could it be That everything in your life that feels like defeat is not God being the villain, but the victor. The difference, everything that feels like defeat, is not God being the villain, but the victor. Could it be? The difference, the difference in what we see depends on who we place at the center of this story. With me at the center, God looks like the villain. 
with him at the center, I know he's the victor. The victor who achieves the very victory I need. A victory of grace. This is what we ultimately see in the book of Judges through the cycles of sin and grace. It's what we ultimately see right here because it seems like these cycles never end. As we go through this book, it's going to be like, again? Like, we're going to get to this point where we're like, does this process even matter? God may raise up a judge to rescue his people and give them rest, but we all know this cycle is going to repeat, and we know exactly when it's going to repeat. One last time, Judges chapter 2 and verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back. The salvation only lasts as long as the Savior Whenever the judge died, the cycle started to repeat. The only way this cycle dies is if we can finally get a judge that doesn't. Shades, a closer look at judges bears witness to our need for Jesus, the judge, the savior who died and rose to live forevermore. The cycle of sin and death ends with him because he achieved victory over both and he gives it to us by grace through faith. He has not abandoned you in the midst of your sin and suffering, but he has entered into it, taken all of it upon himself and defeated it, achieving the very victory you need, a victory of grace. Shades, do you see? God's not the villain of your story. He is the victory. He is the victor of the story, his story, and you are invited in. May, Shades, may this great grace be the unshakable foundation of your faith. So that no matter, no matter what sin or suffering you're, you're facing, you can take a closer look and clearly see that God is at work achieving victory right there in the midst of it. Shades, won't you come? Come in closer and see. Take a closer look at Jesus and see and embrace that he is the victor, achieving victory. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful, so grateful that your word is good. And I pray, I pray that you are at work by your spirit this morning, renewing our minds, our minds that come to this word and see it through a self-centered lens that causes us to object and to miss its goodness. I pray that you're at work renewing our minds, putting yourself at the center of the story so that we see the story rightly. We see you in your goodness and your grace and your great love. We see you in your holiness and your righteous wrath. And we see that even that is a beautiful display of who you perfectly and purely are. And I pray that all of it draws us in to take a closer look at your greatness, your goodness, your beauty, your glory. And that as a result, we embrace you by faith. We praise you, our great God of grace. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, by your spirit.